Hey, great day. So before we get into today's podcast episode, I have a huge announcement. We are bringing back the Abundant CEO Private Practice Bootcamp. This is a three-day virtual party that I'm inviting all mental health therapists that either want a private practice in the next six to 12 months, or you already have had a private practice, maybe for the last year, five years, or even over a decade, but you want to understand wealth and cash flow in your company. You want to learn how to show up as a CEO and work more on your business versus in your business. Maybe you want to assess the health and the wealth of your current or future private practice to really see if you're on the right path to increasing your revenue, to growing your practice, maybe to streams of income later, or maybe even a group practice. Bottom line is you will walk away from this three-day bootcamp clarifying and understanding your niche, understanding how to show up as an abundant CEO, and most importantly, assessing the health of what you believe is a profitable private practice. So head down to the show notes and go to the link drtk.com forward slash links and sign up for the bootcamp. I'll see you there. Now let's head into the podcast episode. Welcome to the Branding for Abundance podcast. My name is Dr. TK. I am a licensed clinical psychologist and success coach. My goal on this podcast is to simply teach you how to proclaim your victory in your relationships, academic and career endeavors, business, money, and your mindset. Learn some simple tools and techniques to brand your life for abundance and live your epic lifestyle. Hey, welcome back to the Branding for Abundance podcast, also where therapists deserve abundance. This is your host, Dr. TK, clinical psychologist and number one therapist business coach. So in today's episode, this is a super special topic. It will be more like a workshop. So make sure that you have your pen and paper ready because I am going to be sharing some cool behind the scenes information regarding failure to 100K months, okay? So let's talk about the purpose of this actual podcast episode. And so I want to share some behind the scene moments of when I was faced with adversity in my business and my personal life. And really the question that came up as I was thinking about this episode is, you know, during that time when some of these things had happened, I was faced with a choice Should I quit or should I be resilient and keep going? So the first thing I want to talk to you about is the great E-triple-P. So the E-triple-P is a licensing exam that psychologists have to take to pass the first portion of our licensing exam. And this test, um, just like a master's level test to become an LCSW or MFT, it is really textbook knowledge. But of course, I believe with standardized tests, you also have to have test taking strategy skills. And so when I first took the test, it was, you know, a little bit after I collected all of my 3000 hours. The one thing I love about becoming a psychologist is that the way our programs are structured we can actually make or earn our 3000 hours literally within two years, as long as we're working full time and we find the right setting that can give us the clinical hours. And so for example, my last year in graduate school, it was called our pre-doctoral internship where we don't take classes. You may be finishing your dissertation, 
but you really just have a full-time job unless you choose to go part-time for personal reasons. So during that full time, we can earn anywhere from 1500 to 2000 hours. We only need 3000 to get licensed. And then afterward, I actually had a job through Los Angeles County. Um, actually, no, I went to a high school first and then I earned the rest of my hours through LA County Department of Mental Health. And of course, when working full time there, working in a juvenile justice system in the facilities, it was very easy for me to collect hours. And so when I took the first EPPP, I'm going to walk you through the stages at certain points in my life when I felt like a failure, okay? And so when I first took the test, I chose a morning time, and I'm telling you the time because it does make a difference in terms of my mindset. I am a early bird person, and so I took it at 8 a.m. However, when I got my results back, and back then we had to wait on our results, I failed the test by six points. Now with these tests, you don't know how many points are correlated with a question. So I was like, well, let's just say it was three questions, two points each. Oh my God, I freaking failed the test by six points. And so what I realized that happened after is that I stopped telling people when I was going to take the test because I adopted a negative mindset. I had a limiting belief and I was actually telling myself that I might not pass. The next time I developed that limiting belief right away, that is not healthy. So then I took it again and I also told myself, well, maybe I need to go to a different testing site because the first testing site was a little bit closer to my school in Oakland, California, um, or in Alameda, California, up up in the Bay Area in Northern California. And then the second time I took the test, I decided, you know what? I took it at eight o'clock, so maybe I'll take it at 1 p.m., bad idea. What the hell was I thinking? I am a definite morning person. And I also had to drive all the way to San Francisco to take the test. And so bottom line, after that experience, I failed the test by three points. So I said, great, maybe that's one question, maybe two. So I was not in alignment with how my brain operates simply because one, I don't do well with activities that require a lot of mental effort if I'm just starting my day at one o'clock. Now, one of the things that I recognized after the test, and this actually happened during the first test as well, is that one of my good friends, one of my best friends right now, we graduated from grad school at the same time, is that she would come over to my home and she could not believe that I didn't pass the test. She actually passed it on the first go round and she was trying to figure out why is it that you can't pass the test? And every time I test you, meaning she would pick up this three to five inch ring binder. And she would literally just flip from section to section, not in any particular order, asking me questions. And at the time I knew the content. I didn't get not one answer incorrect. It was crazy. And I literally saw myself as having a photographic memory because when she would state a particular question, meaning she would be making up the questions and so forth, I literally imagined, okay, I know where that was at in the book. It was on the bottom page, on the back page, on the left. Oh, the word was in bold. Oh, okay, this is what it is. This is what it means. And then I was able to provide even a rationale to 
the question. So she was like, how did you not pass the test? You answered every single question and provided a rationale and you got it correct. So she was like, yo, you might have test anxiety. And I'm like, duh, I've always had test anxiety. But that's a limiting belief within itself because that's the narrative that I have been telling myself pretty much my whole life since I'm going to say the SAT test and the ACT test in high school. If I didn't get a score that was equivalent to what I knew my knowledge level and where it was at that time, I would say that I had test anxiety because I clearly knew the content. Okay, so I wasn't in alignment with the person that I should be showing up as in terms of a person that believes that I will pass the test. And as a matter of fact, if we focus on the act as if, I should have been showing up saying, oh, I've already passed the test. So then comes along test number three. So I kept the test still to myself. I did not tell anyone that I was taking the test. I scheduled it on a day that I typically don't work, so I don't have to request time off. I took the test at 8 a.m. I went to the testing center that I went back to the first time, but something happened, okay? So I was like in a certain mindset. I was super excited and I just knew that I was about to pass this test, all right? So one of the things that I clearly remember is that on question two, I just knew that I had that question Correct. And then something really bad happened in the testing center environment. So what ended up happening is during the test, I'm going to say I was on question one, I had on the soundproof headphones and I remember hearing someone sound like they're snoring. And in the testing center, you have people taking the MCAT, the LSAT for law school, the GRE for grad school, and then of course the EPPP and I'm sure other types of tests. And so it's about at any given time, like 15 to 20 people in our little mini cubicles with maybe the headsets on. And so I heard someone kind of snoring. And then I'm thinking to myself, as I go on to the next question, I know somebody did not fall asleep on day test at no 8.15 in the morning, right? And at first, you know, I was just like, that's crazy. And then the snoring got louder and louder. And then a memory triggered in my mind. I used to date a guy in my early 20s. And I remember he did not tell me he had a seizure disorder. We were in my mother's living room having a movie night, end up falling asleep on the couch. And I remember he had a seizure at like two o'clock in the morning or something crazy. Now, he didn't even know that he had a seizure until the next morning when I told him, hey, you had a seizure on me. What the heck is happening? But the one thing that I do remember is that after the seizure, I could not wake him up because he sounded like he was snoring, right? And it was the same sound that this person was having during this test. So after I realized that that sounded the same, I snatched off my headphones. I didn't want to make a commotion, but everybody starts standing up. And of course, the people standing next to him, I mean, or sitting next to him in that row of the cubicle start freaking out saying, hey, call 911, call 911. And it was very interesting too, because the people who were taking the MCAT for med school, I mean, they kind of took on the... Um, the identity of a doctor already like, oh my God, we got to do CPR and all these things, right? So we all ran over to him because at that point, he's kind of convulsing and snoring, but somehow he made it 
to the floor. I think he kind of seized out of his seat because he was sitting on the edge. And so of course, 911 was called. And this may sound very crazy, but I definitely, and I, I'll tell you about how I realized this later, I was definitely in fight or flight mode. So the first thing I thought about was, this is my third damn time. 911 has been called and this flowed out of my mouth. I said, hey, I don't mean to be rude, but I know that because my friends had also taken the test. And what happens when you take these tests, if you're not done in four hours, the computer shuts down. I, I know that they would excuse us, but I don't know how the computer works and how it's going to reboot. Am I going to get the same test? Because God is telling me this is the test that I'm going to pass. So I said, hey, our computers are running. What should we do? Because we're being timed. And I'm glad that I did say something because everybody was so much in shock, including the people who facilitate our tests or mock the tests. So they were like, oh my God, you're so right. Everybody go to your computer right now and shut it down because when we shut it down, it will pause where we're at. And I'm like, okay, are you sure I'm not going to lose my test results? And they were like, yeah. So everybody went and shut down our test. And then this process took about maybe up to an hour. So the EMT came, it was very traumatic. Everybody is standing around him. This gentleman does not have any sign of breathing. They had to literally pull out the shocker thing to shock him. It was still, he went to a flat line multiple times. He was a Caucasian male. He started turning blue. This was my first time seeing something this traumatic, like this close, okay, beyond like community violence. And so it was freaking me out. And it was just more amazing, I think, that like we were just watching it, which speaks highly to the level of trauma that maybe some people have been exposed to, whether it's on TV, in movies, and for myself in real life. And so they were trying to stick him, trying to, I guess, like pump his blood. Nothing was happening. So after literally about 30 to 40 minutes of this, they had to put him on the gurney. He was very loose limb, flat line, not breathing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this dude is, oh my God, I hope he don't pass away. You know? So they end up taking him out because I think that they also realized like, okay, like nothing is happening and we need to clearly get him to a hospital. So as he leaves, the test people come back in and they say, you know, we understand if you want to discontinue your test, if you want to reschedule, of course, we're not going to hold this against you because typically, you know, if you reschedule your test, you have to pay for it. So they were like, you know, um, we also understand if you need to take a longer break than anticipated, we can pause your test and then you can finish back up. If you need to go get something to eat, that's perfectly fine. I went into fight or flight again. And I'm like, nope, I came to pass this test. Turn on my computer right now. So I took the test and literally I just felt like another level of like highness. Okay. So this is what happened. Um, the results came in a few weeks later, your girl passed, but not just by breaking even not just by one or two points, because statistically, typically when you take the same test, even though it's different questions, multiple times, you will find that your score sometimes will go backward or it may not increase that much. So I passed by an amount that is statistically unheard of. I really hope that you're enjoying today's podcast episode. And yes, I am interrupting my own podcast to invite you to check out the Dope Therapist Academy, also known as DTA. 
We help therapists move from living check to check, not seeing their ideal clients in their practice, feeling overwhelmed as a result of running their practice by themselves and not seeing real profits in their business. All you have to do is head down to the show notes and click on the Dope Therapist Academy or visit us at www.drtk.com forward slash DTA. This program has helped numerous of therapists in over 30 states, and it can help you too. The DTA program is perfect for any therapist or clinician either starting or revamping a private practice to experience exponential growth and earn 10K months or something better. So in just less than 60 days, our five-step profitable brand model will teach you the strategies to build your dream caseload for your ideal clients, create a profitable business blueprint so that you can have your dream schedule, gain clarity about your niche so that you can add streams of income beyond your wildest dreams, develop a wealth mindset as a business owner, not just an entrepreneur, so that your private practice can generate true profits, press the automation button in your back office so that your business can run effectively and efficiently while you live abundantly. And lastly, we'll help you delegate tasks to complete and accomplish the freedom lifestyle that you deserve. So regardless if you're a newbie, existing private practice business owner, or you have a private practice on the side part-time, you deserve to create a business and lifestyle full of abundance. So to learn more about the Dope Therapist Academy program, be sure to click the link in the show notes. And now let's tune back into our podcast episode. My score increased over 50 something points. I think it was like over 54 points from what I had before with the minus three points that I was missing to pass the test. So when I received my results that week, I was also working gaining hours in the Victims of Crime program um, that I was working at in Richmond, California. And I was working with homicide victims' family members. So I was having one-on-one supervision with my clinical supervisor And I told him what happened. And of course, he specializes in now what I know of as EMDR. So he said to Keisha, this is interesting, you know? And I'm like, I know, right? This is like a reality TV show. And he said, you should really write a paper about this process. And I still haven't, you know, but I clearly talk about it like from time to time. And so he said, you know, what do you think happened as to why your score went up so much because he was the one that pointed out the increase of my points being statistically abnormal. So he said, what do you think that was about? And I was like, I don't know. And he said, you know, have you felt like this before where you pushed yourself over the max to thrive in in an environment that is low-key traumatic? And I couldn't think of anything in the moment. I'm like, I don't think so. You know, outside of like academia, And so do you know, because that was back in 2010, do you know that nine years later, I'm teaching at a community college, literally like a year or so ago, right? I'm teaching at a community college. I'm teaching psychology students for a general psych course in which it's a mixture of college students plus high school students. And I'm teaching them on the fight or flight response. So as I'm teaching them also in terms of the biological components of psychology, a light bulb goes off in my head. I'm not actually telling them 
what happened with my test, but I'm actually talking about fight or flight response in terms of trauma. And what I realized as I was teaching, and I actually talked the students through what was going on in my brain because I think it was very good for them to hear what I'm about to share with you, okay? And so with trauma, um, I've been conditioned to bounce back fairly quickly when I am introduced to like community violence. Now, I didn't realize my bounce back, also called resiliency, Um, I didn't understand what that was when I was going through it. I didn't understand it until I started understanding trauma as I got into the psychology field. So as I was conditioned to bounce back quickly, it actually allowed me to hyper-focus. Why? So remember when the supervisor was like, you know, has this come up for you before? Well, it has. Anytime that I was exposed to community violence, I would bounce back and go about my day like nothing ever happened. Am I saying that that's healthy? Hell no. But It's also a defense mechanism that has protected my life and my mindset and honestly my sanity for a very long time. So what I've done over time as I actually processed this after the class that day is that I learned how to ignore negative stimuli around me and it actually became my strength. And I believe that it still is a strength because I now am able to recognize clearly when something is traumatic and I will then of course choose who and when I want to, you know, how I want to process it. And then of course I'll get it out, but that's not it. So that was the E triple P and this is all capturing. Remember I said it's going to be like a workshop. This is all capturing me going from moments of failure or feelings of failure internally to resiliency. So now let's go about the ethics exam. At this point, I'm down in Southern California. I am working for the county. I take the ethics exam in the morning and you guessed it, I failed by one freaking point. That is like one question, right? So again, I know the information, but one thing I will say about ethics that's very different than the EPPP is that the EPPP is like one plus one equal two meaning it's textbook knowledge. There's no if and buts about it. It may give you two best answers and you choose the best one, but you still know what the contextual answer is based off of the textbook answer. In the ethics exam, it's a little different because two answers are actually the correct answer, but you have to choose the best answer, typically based off of a vignette, a diagnosis and things like that. So what I did instead of walking around woe is me is I used my experience during the E triple P and I actually used my job working in the jail to help me study. So you may be wondering, well, how did I do that? So anytime that I had to do an intake on a kid, that was the perfect opportunity to test my ability to come up with the right diagnoses. Even before I looked at the DSM, it taught me how to diagnose individuals correctly and also do a decision tree. I didn't have to do a decision tree because clearly I have the DSM, but I did a decision tree from time to time with actually a lot of kids that came through our system because I wanted to flush it out the way that I would have to do it in the ethics exam, like on a scratch sheet of paper. 
I also had enough time to study because when the kids were in school, we really weren't allowed to see them. So that was time to do my paperwork, but I was pretty much on point with my paperwork. And what's nice is because I was in a very quiet and structured environment versus my home with like a television and all this stimuli or talking to my friends or going out, I was actually able to get a lot done and I was actually able to go home and just live life. So bottom line is when I started incorporating this mindset while I was working and helping me study, I was able to apply what I have learned into real life, into my work. And also while I was working in the jail, as I mentioned, it also helped me make better ethical decisions because I'm reviewing all of this content for my tests. Honestly, it was vignettes around me all the time. Probation officers would come to me and give me a situation and I would have to figure out a way um, to help them understand this kid from a psychological perspective to then give them recommendations. And so I did schedule my ethics exam a few months later because you do have to actually wait six months. Unlike the EPPP, I took the second one like after like uh, maybe 45 days. So I passed the ethics exam and it was a little bit over clearly one point, but your girl jumped up and down. I really wanted to just do a flip or something like that. Um, but one of the biggest wins monetarily that I can say is that I had already received a raise from my job because I had been there for a year. So initially when I started my job as a licensed psychologist, I came in at $60,000. They don't account for any experience that you have if it was before a licensure, I mean, um, pre-licensure. And so I came in at $60,000 non-licensed, which is pretty good. Then I had a raise to about sixty-two dollars to $63,000. And this also excludes free benefits. And so sometimes when I calculate my benefits, I would really say that I'm making about $85,000 when you count all the things that they're giving me for free. So my salary, as soon as I got licensed, it took about 30 days, um, maybe two or three pay cycles. I went from $63,000 to $78,000 automatically. To me, that is a very good reward, positive reinforcement for getting licensed. And for me, because I had owned a home, I was really looking forward to that because I have student loans and I want to live life abundantly. So you may be wondering, why did I take you through a, a story about my failures in terms of a test? What does this have to do with running a profitable private practice or adopting streams of income to run an effective mental health business. So I am sharing this for therapists who maybe can't pass their tests. Maybe they resonate with parts of my story. Maybe they resonate with the mindset and the limiting beliefs that I had. This is also for therapists who sometimes feel like they want to give up on their business in their career because they have stumbled across obstacles, whether that it's internal or whether it's external. Maybe this is for therapists who tell themselves those limiting beliefs and they talk themselves out of their next blessing. This is also for business owners who see defeat in their business, but I'm here to tell you that I'm sure you've overcome in your personal life and during your career worse. And I can say that with pride and with confidence because you're still standing. You're listening to this podcast episode. Am I saying that your history is fixed? I don't know. But the fact of the matter is you have some level of resiliency because you're listening to this podcast episode. 
So what are you learning during experiences where you experience defeat, where you feel maybe like a failure, even if the failure moment is like for 10 minutes, because if you have digital products, your launch didn't do as well. You didn't get as many email addresses. You didn't get as many people into your group therapy um, program as you would have liked, right? So are you actually learning from your experience or are you just looking at this experience as a failure because it did not come easy to you? So guess what? You didn't go to school to become a business owner. You didn't even go to school to learn about challenging your limiting beliefs. You learned about cognitive behavioral therapy to train, uh, not to train, but to teach your therapy clients to ideally go from uh, impairments, being non-functional, to being functional. So the school, it wasn't their job to train you as a business owner. You went to school to become a life change agent, aka become an employee. It's not the school's fault that you were not trained to have a profitable practice. Get off your high horse. I've seen in way too many Facebook groups, therapists get really upset and I feel like it's coming from a state of resentment where they literally demand and make statements saying my school should have taught me how to own a business. Well, guess what? The institutions, they're not built for that. If you want to learn how to have a business, you go and you get a business degree and even the business degrees don't teach you how to have a profitable business. Institutions, academic institutions, they're built to create employees, to then go into the economy, to make the economy keep going. Employees do continue to make our economy grow. Even your business at one point, if you don't already have this, will need to employ people for your business to grow because you can't do everything yourself. So stop focusing on what the school lacked to provide you and start looking for the solution. Be a responsible adult and go fix the problem. So for example, if your car is broke, are you not going to go to work? Are you not going to go to your private practice? Are you not going to go to a speaking engagement because you want to throw a temper tantrum? Maybe about the dealer because they're not available at eight o'clock when you need them to be available. Maybe they did not fix the problem all the way when you took your car in last time. So you go throw a temper tantrum or will you simply just say, you know what? I got to rearrange my schedule. I need to go up there at 10 o'clock. I'm going to take my laptop. They got Wi-Fi. I'm going to work in the lobby and Then after they're done, I'm going to go to work or I'm going to go to my office. I'm going to go make money. As a matter of fact, I can make money on my computer while I'm sitting in their lobby with popcorn. And then I'll take it up with the dealership later in terms of my feedback, or maybe I'll put it on the feedback form. But bottom line, I'm going to get my car fixed. I would hope that you're going to focus on the latter, which is the solution. Remember, you cannot get your time back. So the more and more you're having a temper tantrum, you're actually, you're utilizing precious time. The more you wait on something to change without you making any moves, meaning moving toward the solution, the more you will remain stagnant in your business. And that may equal where you are now in your business. You have plateaued. You may be making a lot of money in your private practice, but 
Can you truly say that you see all of your ideal clients, you get paid your true value with all of your clients, your caseload is your ideal schedule, meaning you see clients only on days and times that you want to, and you're actually living life abundantly even outside of your practice by doing what you want, even if that includes other streams of income. So with your time, if you're choosing to focus your time on making complaints, then you're not growing. And if you have no growth, you're definitely not going to make it to scalability, which is working less while earning more. So this is leading into the from failure to 100K months. My growth to move into six-figure months all started, please hear me, with me understanding my private practice. It did not start with me having a coaching business. A lot of therapists see me with a coaching business and they'll say, oh, the way that I'm going to be able to make that amount of money is if I open up a coaching business. No, you need to utilize your lowest hanging fruit to get your money up, make it steady. Because to be real, my first few coaching programs were like for me to learn how to brand and market my practice. So I actually invested in coaching, not for private practice, but really just to brand and market myself. And the reason why I didn't do anything specifically for private practice, and I made a lot of mistakes is because there wasn't anybody doing what I'm doing, which is why I'm really good at what I do because I've stepped out the box. I've invested in the best of the best in terms of learning how to market and brand myself as a brand. And then of course I looked for solutions, which means that I spent a lot of time going down the rabbit hole on YouTube, on podcasts, going to various trainings, whether they worked or didn't work so that I can find the solution. And after I've done all that and I've made the mistakes, I now provide coaching to therapists so that they do not make the mistakes again. Why reinvent the wheel? So as a recap, what we've talked about today is I've highlighted a lot of my pain points in terms of limiting mindsets, narratives that I would tell myself, keeping to myself the wins that I want to have, and also having to learn how to reframe my mindset so that I can pass my test. Learning from my experience of getting really down on myself, and when I take the test the next time, I'm not a failure, I'm actually a success. And maybe, just maybe, God is doing this on purpose so that he can see how well I'm a bounce back. And I really do not ever regret any failure that I've had in my personal or business life because it has created the person that you hear about and or see today if you interact with me, okay? So I have a program, a signature program called the Dope Therapist Academy. By the time you are listening to this episode, the doors to the academy are closing very soon. So if you are on the fence, let me ask you, what will you not have Or what will you not accomplish if you know that you hear that little voice saying you need to join now, but you're talking yourself out of it. So what will you not have if you don't get help with your business right now? Where will you be at in six months from now if you don't get the help that you know you need in your business right now? So maybe you'll give up abundance because of fear. Maybe if you pause with getting help with your business, you start adopting the whole false evidence appearing real and then you don't make any moves. But remember, fear does not exist. It is actually a narrative that you have conditioned yourself to believe. So just do me a favor. Do what you tell your clients. 
If you know, if they know that they need help, they seek you out for therapy. If you want to change, you have to believe that you can. So what will it be if you've not joined the Dope Therapist Academy and you want to learn more about the Dope Therapist Academy? Check out the show notes. You have nothing to lose by checking it out. You can go to the link in the show notes. If it's closed, still read about it. It won't hurt for you to even get on the wait list. So what I want to do next time in the future episodes, because now that DTA is wrapping up in terms of this cohort, it is the time of year where the second part I really focus on. All right, now we've talked about a lot of growth. We've talked about private practice. So now I want to shift a little bit and start talking about what does it mean to go from growth, meaning steady income, steady cash flow, steady caseloads in your private practice to then scaling your business. So we're going to talk about some topics in regards to scaling. You're going to hear from some more students of mine within the next few weeks, maybe few months and what you can learn from their experience in terms of scaling. Let me know what was your biggest takeaway from this episode. Take a snapshot of it, post it on my stories and tag me at Dr. TK Psych. Make sure that you follow me on this podcast channel so that you can be notified when there is another episode. I typically upload about two to three episodes a week, depending on the season. Um, But I really hope that you enjoyed this time. Make sure that you share this episode with therapist friends. And if you have not already, check out the Dope Therapist Academy. We have a lot of resources also in our show notes. And I will see you in the next episode. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast episode today. I am super excited to see your growth in your business, career, money, and relationships. Be sure to check me out on Instagram at Dr. TK Psych, where you can find daily inspiration and tips to live your abundant lifestyle.